You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Hi, good morning. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now, and we are fortunate and we are fortunate to have as our guest today Dr. Yoram Hazoni, author of The Virtue of Nationalism. Before we begin our discussion about nationalism, I want to encourage you to visit the website nationalconservatism.org, where you will find information about a conference Dr. Hazoni is organizing this July 14th through 16th in Washington, D.C. Speakers at the, Nash, at the Nationalism Conference include John Bolton, Tucker Carlson, Michael Anton, Mike Gonzalez, and many more luminaries. I plan on attending and hope to see you there. All the information about the conference can be found at nationalconservatism.org. I should like to begin our conversation with, uh, with Yoram Hazoni um, with a brief introduction. His new book, and this is one of several books he has written, the virtue of nationalism has caused somewhat of a firestorm in intellectual circles and in political circles. And the word nationalism has, over the last few decades, become a lightning rod word that has all sorts of connotations. And Yoram, first off, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. And uh, secondly, I'm going to ask you somewhat of a big question. <laughs> Why did you write The Virtue of Nationalism? And what do you hope to accomplish with this conference? I wrote The Virtue of Nationalism because I thought that the, uh, the public debate on nationalism was, was terribly confused and in a lot of ways very unfair. Because nationalism is actually a used to be uh, a very respected political tradition in in Western countries uh, for over the last couple of centuries, many many great figures on on the political left and and right saw themselves as uh, as nationalists, and for most of that time, nationalism was actually an honorable thing to be. People were uh, were respected and uh, considered to be you know, sort of uh, broad-hearted people. What's nationalism? Nationalism, in their eyes, was the uh, was and is the a principled view that says that the world is governed best when it's governed uh, by independent, self-determining nations. Right. That meaning that there are lots of different nations, and each one has its own traditions and gets to chart its own course. And that's as opposed to imperialism or globalism, which is a view that says, no, we're better off if there's sort of one law for all the nations in the world, and it's governed from some kind of center. And I, I came to feel uh, in, at some point in, in the spring of 2016 that the supporters of uh, Brexit, and of, uh, of the Trump movement in the United States and, and nationalism in other countries were being treated extremely unfairly uh, 
because the, the point of view was being treated as illegitimate and not worthy of respect. That's why I wrote the book. And this upcoming conference, which uh, am I correct in saying that it is going to discuss the issue of nationalism as you presented in this book, and I highly recommend the book, even though I have some knowledge about the subject matter, I learned a great deal by reading it. And uh, do you hope that the conference will continue the conversation, educate? Why should people attend the conference? I think the conference is actually kind of a, um, a turning point uh, I, I'm sorry for being so dramatic, but I, I think many people who are involved feel feel that way. That uh, that the uh, the right of center parties, the Republican Party in the U.S., the Conservatives in the U.K., uh, and other other right of center parties in Democratic countries, for an entire generation, have been kind of uh, beholden to a a worldview that doesn't recognize the independence of and strength of nations as being something important, which is kind of strange because, you know, we all kind of grew up in the conservative movement. I always thought that that was an integral part of conservatism, but for a long time, many of the dominant figures in, uh, in American and European conservatism have been globalists. They've been people who thought that, that uh, a new world order was the, the best way to go about things. And uh, the, the national conservatism, conservatives who are nationalists, have been kind of pushed to, a, to the side during that time. Now they're making a comeback. It's, uh, there's still a long road to go, but, uh, but this is the first conference in which we're going to get the, uh, the entire spectrum, I think, of... Uh, of, uh, of American national conservatives, uh, both the ones from, uh, uh, from the establishment and the ones from the, uh, from the anti-establishment in one place to declare that national conservatism is a, is a living movement. It's an, it's an alternative to, uh, both the, uh, the kind of, uh, neoconservatism, uh, that has dominated conservative politics on the one hand, the, the, the libertarianism that's dominated conservative politics, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we're, we're also, all the people coming to this conference, uh, uh, which, uh, uh, which is, you can take a look on, uh, on the site, but we're talking about uh, 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 f- almost 50 speakers uh, across the range of subjects talking about uh, immigration and national cohesion and, and national interest in foreign policy and uh, national economics, almost the entire range of speakers are people who understand that libertarianism doesn't work. And on the other hand, we, do, we don't want to end up in the hands of the, the racist right, uh, which is, is quickly getting stronger among young people. And in between... In between those, you find uh, uh, you, you find people like uh, uh, like uh, Tucker Carlson and Senator Hawley and uh, and uh, Chris Demuth and Rusty Reno and all of the other 
uh, dozens of speakers who say, no, we need something new, and that new thing is national conservatism. The website where you can see all these speakers and the agenda is nationalconservatism.org. In the book, you talk about nationalism versus universalism. Can you explain that? Sure. You can, there is a legitimate political point of view that says, why divide the world into nations, right? It's, it's kind of like this John Lennon view. Why have any divisions at all? Let's, let's just have one world with, with one world government, and uh, it'll be run by the United Nations or by something like the European Union, and uh, we'll have open borders, and people will be free to, to move anywhere that they want, Let's do that, right? It's a, it's a legitimate point of view. From my point of view, it's, it, it, it's a crazy point of view. It's a utopian point of view that can't possibly work uh, be, because human beings are um, uh, naturally divide themselves by, by language, by religion, by historical traditions. We, we, we form strong group loyalties, and, uh, and then we develop our group, and we don't that doesn't mean that we we have to abuse and, and, and be nasty to members of other groups, but but the all of the good that comes of uh, from human societies in the end is the result of the competition between groups. That's the way that we advance the competition between nations, and uh, and so a um, a universalist view, if if the idea is everybody should be under one government. Well, that's going to be opposed by particularists, by nationalists and tribalists and people, members of particular religious traditions uh, who say, look, I want, I, I want to be free, to have my society be an experiment that's different from the neighboring society. My country should be different from the neighbor, neighboring country. Universalism means that the whole world has to be in the end the same. Somebody's going to be decided. It's like a totalitarian vision. Whereas a particularist says, look, I may not disagree. I, I may disagree with the way that they do things in, uh, in, in Germany or in the UK or in India or in Japan. I may disagree with it because they do things differently from me. But I think that they have their right to try things their way and they should let me try things my way. I think that's the heart of the disagreement. In your book, you make a very strong point in that when you talk about how in the Bible we learn about the importance of nations. And at one point you say that uh, while Moses was presenting laws for all nations, um, presented him by God. In fact, he was presenting to the people of Israel, not to all nations, not that it was an example for all nations, it was. But in fact, he was very particular in that he dealt with the Israelites. Can you talk about the biblical roots of nationhood? Uh, yes, this is part of the Part of our problem growing up in 
uh, in the very, very liberal uh, societies in the West is that the, the history that we learn uh, in school and in universities is is kind of uh, gerrymandered so that uh, biblical ideas aren't aren't usually included in the discussion. Uh, that's part of the reason that you don't learn about nations um, and, and about national independence and uh, uh, and and a world divided into nations. You don't you don't usually learn about that. Even if you're, you know, even if you're getting a PhD in political theory, you still you still don't usually study it. And the reason is that that these ideas have their source in the Bible. They don't they don't have Greek or Roman sources. And so the the idea that that uh, the world should be divided up into many many different independent nations, and each one is going to be different, and that God actually wants it that way. That's a biblical idea that you don't you don't find it in Greek and Roman sources. So exactly as you said, it's kind of remarkable that um, it it it's clear that the prophets think that that God, Creator of heaven and earth, is giving Moses a teaching that is important for all the nations of the world. I, that's said over and over again. It's very clear. But on the other hand, Moses gets borders from God, which are also repeated over and over again. And in Deuteronomy, uh, God tells Moses, Mo Moses tells the people in God's name that they're not allowed to cross into the, into, uh, the neighboring countries because, because God gave them their land and the Jews aren't allowed to touch them. So it turns out that the same God, the universal God, who gives Moses you know, a teaching for all the nations, that same God also is the first God in history, as far as we know, to give borders to his people and say you're not allowed to cross those borders. All right? And so in the Western tradition, this idea that the nations need to set borders and to leave each other alone across those borders, that's completely a biblical idea. Romans didn't believe in that. Romans thought the opposite, we, we, that, that, that you should go out and conquer everybody and bring peace and prosperity to the world by suppressing all the differences. Okay, but, but the Jewish way, which later becomes uh, the, the, uh, the Christian way, at, 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 at least for part of Christian history, is that, no, the world is divided up into different nations, and God enjoys the, uh, the diversity and the flourishing of many different peoples, each one with its own way, each one approaches God in, 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 in its own way. That's the source for, for the biblical source for nationalism. In a recent review of your book, a neocon accused you are being on the same side of Hitler's Nazi Germany. Now, what you're talking about is a lethal nationalism that will do horrendous things like the Nazis did. What's your response to that? Well, to the, my first response uh, is that he should calm down. And this, this is no way to, No, seriously, this is, this is no way to... He says that I'm importing malignant nationalism into the United States. And I, I think you should calm down. I mean, I agree that we need to have a debate. We have to have a serious debate, but there's no point in all, this, uh, all, all, all of this name-calling. 
uh, I, I think I, I wrote a book that is respectable, it's respectful, it quotes uh, his, his friends, it argues with them in a very respectful way, and I footnote them, and th there's, no, there's no point in this hysteria. I mean, there actually is a point. The point is that people who've been in power are scared to death that us nationalists may actually put together a serious, respectful, a competent, intellectually uh, uh, useful uh, alternative to the way that they look in the at the world. Right, that's my first response. Let's let, let's talk for a second about the substance of what he's arguing. What he's claiming is that uh, that Adolf Hitler, who had a a, a racist imperialist goal of conquering the world, and he wrote this is he wrote this in Mein Kampf in the 1920s already. His, what was his goal? His goal was to make Germany lord of lord of the earth, mistress of the globe. These are terms that Hitler used. That's how he, he got his people excited, was with a vision, an imperialist vision of conquering the world. Okay, now that isn't nationalism. That's not the nationalist tradition that existed before Hitler came to power that so many great figures were uh, believed in. Uh, Hitler was anti-nationalist because, remember, the nationalist idea is that the world should be governed by many different independent nations. And Hitler hated that idea. He had contempt for that idea, explicitly contempt. He thought it was disgusting, a, a, a corrupt idea of the English and the French that, that there should be many different nations. Okay, so so what he, what he's accusing me of uh, th th this uh, overheated neoconservative, he's accusing me of sympathizing with uh, with racist imperialism or advancing racist imperialism. When the whole purpose of my book and of this conference, the National Conservatism Conference, is exactly the opposite. It's to say no, we. We national conservatives have no sympathy for imperialism, and we have no sympathy for racism, and we have no sympathy for anything that looks remotely like Nazism. What we're interested in is a world of free nations. And anybody who is interested in a world of free and independent nations should come and hear what we have to say. Yoram, you live in the state of Israel, which is a nation-state that is proud of its existence, proud of its accomplishments, and yet it is the target of left, far-left, far-right attacks on a minute-by-minute basis. What, in your book, you talk about two lessons that the world should learn from Auschwitz. Can you summarize what those lessons are? Well, I think, I think that the world did learn two competing lessons from Auschwitz. Right? And actually, usually people who learned one lesson didn't, didn't learn the other because they're, they're almost opposites. Right? We in Israel, um, and, and not just in Israel, but, uh, but our friends uh, all over the world, uh, we use the expression, never again, to mean that never again will we allow Jews, 
the Jewish people or or other persecuted nations to to be in a position where they are unarmed and at the mercy of uh, totalitarian racist imperialists who are trying to take over the world and to reform it in their image. Israel is in in our tradition, Israel is the answer to Auschwitz because we, we Jews, we've armed ourselves, we, we protect ourselves, our aim is to defend our children. That doesn't mean that we always succeed, but, but we understand that that's the only moral way to live, is to defend your way of life and to defend your children. So that's, that's one lesson of Auschwitz. That's the lesson that most Jews and, and, and our friends learned. But in Europe today, when you travel among supporters of the European Union, you hear the exact opposite. They, they also believe that they learned the lesson of Auschwitz, but they believe the opposite. The lesson that they learned from Auschwitz is that no is that the, the Germans were evil because not, the Germans were evil. They did evil. They were independent, and so. The European Union and the United Nations and international law, its purpose, the lesson of Auschwitz is don't allow any nation ever to be independent again. Don't allow any nation to arm itself so that it can protect its own children because there's going to be some kind of world government that will take care of everybody. Okay, so, so those people, they say they learned in the European Union, uh, like the, the, the Chancellor of Germany, for example, the, the, the President of France, Macron and Merkel, they learned the lesson of Auschwitz, they say, but they learned the opposite lesson. They learned the lesson that everybody should should be prevented from having their own armies, their own independence, their own sovereignty. So they think the exact opposite from what we in Israel think. I have to say that I have been pleasantly surprised by the impact your book, The Virtue of Nationalism, has had on the public debate. As we all know, there has been a concerted effort uh, by the mainstream media, by some neocons who are anti-Trumpers, by people who are anti-Brexiters, to uh, denounce the concept that individual nations have in fact a right, a duty, and should stand as individual nations. Are you surprised that by the impact that your book is having, and I'm sure that the conference that you have, given the, uh, the that is coming up in July, given the very high quality of individuals who will be speaking at it, uh, will further the impact of the arguments that you make in the book. Are you pleased with the reception of the book? Sure, I, I'm. I, I'm very pleased. I mean, every every author should 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 be happy to have, you know, to to write a book that within you know within a year or two is is uh, uh, being being read in in. Uh, uh, at the White House and in the State Department, and is being uh, read in the foreign ministries of uh, of, uh, of Europe. It's uh, it's very exciting. We still have an awful lot of work to do, but um, 
but I think the impact of the book is, uh, I think it's pretty clear what, what its significance is. I, I can't take any credit for creating uh, Brexit or Donald Trump or, uh, or the, the, the nationalist movements in, in Eastern Europe or, or, uh, or Italy or India or in Brazil. Right? I, you know, I, I live in Israel and I do what I do most of the time here. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, none of these movements um, has, has yet been able to uh, advance a very clear intellectual defense of what they're doing. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. I mean, very often the intellectuals, it doesn't make any difference how good an intellectual you are. Very often intellectuals can be more wrong than, you know, the, the, the average person on the street. Uh, but but the, the fact is that almost all of the intellectuals for a generation have been on the other side. They've been on the side of globalism and universalism and a universal liberal empire. And almost no uh, serious political theorists and philosophers have stepped forward. I mean, there are a few. I'm not the only one. But very, very few have stepped forward uh, in order to defend this instinct, uh, this this uh, common-sense political view of national independence uh, that is sweeping these countries. And so uh, here you have a book which, you know, in, 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 uh, in a couple of hundred pages with all the footnotes you could want, uh, gives you the sources going all the way back to the time of the, of the Bible and all the way up to, to uh, current times. It gives you all the sources uh, or, or many of them. It gives you all the arguments or many of them that you need in order to be able to explain to yourself what, why is it that good people can can be nationalists? Why is it that intelligent, serious people can be nationalists? And, uh, and I'm very excited that, that uh, the book is being translated into, uh, into languages um, far and wide. It's, right, right now it's being translated into uh, Italian, Portuguese, uh, Hungarian, Romanian, Polish, uh, Chinese, Korean, uh, and, and uh, I'm sure there's going to be more. Uh, it's um, it's a very very exciting time, and uh, I'm I'm just grateful that I've been able to uh, contribute in in a in a significant way to it. Well, I want to thank you. Um, being a believer that ideas have consequences, politicians come and they go. They can be essential at the moment uh, that they're alive. But after they leave, most politicians, nobody really remembers what they did or uh, what they thought. But intellectuals, whether we like them, we don't like them, <laughs> um, I don't have any prejudice against them. But, um, but their ideas, in fact, live on. And there are some terrible ideas like Marxism that we see rearing its ugly head. And there are some very good ideas. And I think that this argument, and you make it in a very academic and scholarly way, although it is a very smooth read, and it's not a difficult read, the book, uh, is extremely important. And as you said, it is being read in the White House and throughout 
the administration here in the United States and abroad. And I want to thank you, Yoram Mazzoni, for joining us in this conversation. I wish you all the luck uh, in the world in terms of continuing your campaign on behalf of nationalism. And hopefully I'll see you in D.C. at, uh, at the conference. Right. It's uh, two, two weeks away, two and a half weeks. I look forward to seeing you. It's been a while at the National Conservatism Conference. And thank you so much for hosting me. I, I, I really appreciate it. I'm grateful. Thank you, Alan. You're welcome. And let me just repeat, go to, for information about the conference, go to nationalconservatism.org. Yoram, I hope we'll have you on again. And, um, and like I said, good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation, dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org.